Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm going to be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? Well, I want to say hi to everybody in this room. I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses. We're on the Bay Area. Everybody joining us online. I'm so glad you're here for this message. Uh, I do want to give you a, a quick view of what's coming up. Uh, those of you who follow football know in two weeks is going to be the Super Bowl. A lot of interest in this. Uh, Eugene, who was just uh, on the platform here, actually came to us from about 10 years in Boston. And so he roots for the New England Patriots. And our elders discourage this. Um, <laughs> the Patriots are evil. Uh, but beyond that, I wanted to let you know, on that weekend, uh, we have a special guest with us, Super Bowl weekend. I'm going to interview His name is Jeremy Affelt. And Jeremy's a baseball player, not a football player. He was with the Giants when they won all three of their World Series. And is also a devoted follower of Jesus. And uh, has just... For a variety of reasons, we were talking this week. He's an amazing guy. He has led a remarkable life, had both highs and lows that most of us can only imagine. And so I want to talk with Jeremy about what is it like when you're winning on the outside but losing on the inside. And I think on that weekend in particular, it's going to be a great time, great topic, great person, wonderful weekend to invite guests. So I wanted you all to know that's coming up. Now, today, I want to talk about Jesus and the Bible and the problem of slavery and racism. Now, of course, I'm not a racist. I'm not bigoted. I have no prejudice. I'm colorblind. I do believe in sin. I do believe in depravity. That's a notion in Presbyterian circles often associated with a white man named John Calvin, although it was written about about a thousand years earlier by a man named Augustine, who, as it happens, was from Africa. Although over the centuries, when white people would paint Augustine, he doesn't look very African in the paintings done of him by white people, but he was from Africa. I believe depravity means that sin gets into the nooks and crannies of my soul so that it has damaged every part of me. It gets into my words. It gets into my thoughts. It gets into my feelings. It gets into my sex life and my financial life and my anger life and my relationship life. But of course, not into my racial life, not into my ethnic identity, not there. I grew up in a church that was all white, although we never talked about the fact that we were all white. We would sing songs that said things like, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. And I never thought about how might singing those words feel in the unlikely event someone came into our church that was not white. If I cut myself, I would go to the drugstore and get Band-Aids that were called flesh-colored. And I never thought about how it might feel if my flesh was a different color than flesh color. I never thought about how in the book of Revelation, when it pictures heaven, it pictures it like this. Every tribe, nation, people, and language standing before the throne. When you go to Rite Aid in heaven and ask for flesh-colored Band-Aids, what color do they give you? My grandfather, my mom's Dad died when I was about five years old. He was a wonderful husband and father. Every Sunday he went to church. Every night he would get this great big Bible and read from it in wonderful ways. 
in the little southern Illinois town where he was a newspaper editor and uh, kind of a council member way before I knew him, one of his jobs at sundown was to approach any person of color and tell them that they needed to move on. They were not welcome to spend the night in that town. And he didn't even have to tell them why. They knew. It was because they were not flesh-colored. The church I grew up in was a Baptist church. And although Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whom our nation remembers this weekend, was a Baptist pastor, I don't remember his message or even his name ever being mentioned at our church, even when he was assassinated. First church I worked at, uh, a guy came on staff the same year who became a really good friend. We were in each other's weddings. He was hilariously funny. We banked at the same place. And sometimes we would go in and he would start singing and I would do an impromptu inspirational speech at the bank and then try to take an offering. And we never got any money, but we were very popular at that bank. As I got to know him better, he would tell me how often he would get stopped in his car at night in the mostly white suburb where our church was because his flesh was not flesh colored. And I realized most days I never thought about the color of my skin. There was never a day that went by that he didn't think about the color of his skin. Never a day. And I say this because we're in a series called That's a Great Question. And today we're asking, is the Bible pro-slavery? That gets us deep into the issue of racism and racial injustice. And this subject is absolutely core to the gospel. It is filled with pain. It is critical to our identity as a church, our mission, our future as the body of Jesus. And, and it's something where I think maybe a considerable number of us have something to learn. And I know I do. I know I do. No, I do. In 1969, a civil rights activist named James Foreman wrote a manifesto, and he nailed it to the door of a church. And it called for the restructuring of society, for amends to be made, for reparations to be paid because of the damage of centuries of racism and slavery. And a Christian scholar named Duke Kwan notes that maybe the most extraordinary part of this manifesto is that it was not addressed to the United States government it's actually addressed to the church of Jesus Christ. It was 400 years ago this year that the first African slaves were kidnapped from Africa and deposited on the shore of Jamestown about the same time that the pilgrims were landing at Plymouth Rock. And over and over and over, the white church of Jesus aided and abetted the enslavement of Africans. By 1750, about 20% of the population of the U.S. colonies was African-Americans, about 12% today. An Anglican bishop had an edict issued to clarify that just because a slave got baptized and came to know Jesus, that did not mean that they were to be set free from slavery. Maybe the most famous Puritan preacher, Cotton Mather, taught that becoming Christians would make slaves better slaves, and that it was sinful pride for an African slave to want to be set free. George Whitfield, maybe the most prominent preacher in the U.S. revival known as the Great Awakening, taught that slavery was God-ordained and that bondage would lead to the salvation of heathen Africans. From 1846 till the Civil War, Every Southern Methodist Episcopal, uh, Episcopal bishop was a slave owner. And if you wonder, 
Why were there Southern Methodists, like Southern Methodist University or Southern Baptists or so? It was over the issue of slavery. Even in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the two most prominent white evangelists, D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, uh, proclaimed the gospel to audiences that were segregated so that nobody who was African-American was allowed to sit with the white people to hear the news that Jesus Christ had died for every human being. The white church, in Duke Kwan's words, signed the moral permission slip to subjugate, enslave, humiliate the millions of human beings kidnapped from Africa and then their descendants and then Jim Crow laws and lynchings and so. so it's a real important subject, and in the time that's left, I want to look at these three questions. What does the Bible say about slavery? I want to kind of do a deep dive into this one because it's complex. And then what does the Bible say about racism? And then what does all that mean for our calling together as a church and for you and me? So here we go. What does the Bible say about slavery? Now, one of the ironies of the Civil War and battles in the church before the Civil War is that both people on the pro-slavery side and people on the anti-slavery side claimed justification for their position from the Bible. You might know about this. Preachers on the pro-slavery side would cite texts like 1 Peter 2.18, where Peter would say, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And the Apostle Paul gave quite similar commands to the church at Colossae, church at Ephesus. So pro-slavery preachers would point to those verses and say, it's right there in the Bible. Slaves, obey your master. Clearly, the Bible is pro-slavery. However, as you might know, the great moral force behind abolition, uh, the the end of slavery was overwhelmingly Christian. William Wilberforce in England, and then John Wesley, and uh, Frederick Douglass, a fascinating new biography out about his life and his Christian faith. Jonathan Blanchard, who started the Christian school where I went to college, they would cite the golden rule, or the command to love your neighbor as yourself, or the prophetic demand for justice. And this uh, conflict was so striking, Abraham Lincoln, in, in what is, I think, the greatest talk, certainly the greatest theological analysis of any United States president ever in his second inaugural address noted, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other side. And all of this sometimes leads people to think that, you know, you can twist the Bible into saying anything that you want to make it say, and therefore any claim that anybody is really being morally guided by the Bible is just suspect and to be regarded with skepticism. But I don't think that's true, and this is real important, although complex. There's a very helpful framework for looking at the Bible and social systems, broader issues of justice. It was offered by a New Testament scholar named William Webb. And it's real important to understand the nature of the Bible. The Bible is not this abstract heavenly blueprint for universal utopia. The Bible was written by real people in a real cultural context who were facing real problems and quite often commanded the audience uh, to make limited but doable changes that point in the direction of God's ultimate love and justice for human flourishing. Now, in the ancient world, systems like patriarchy, slavery, polygamy, monarchy were pretty much universal. So, for example, when the Bible was written, all the cultures that the biblical writers engaged with involved slavery. 
Canaanite, Egyptian, Ethiopian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Greece, and ancient Rome, something between one-third and one-half of all of the inhabitants of the city of Rome are thought now by historians to have been slaves. An economic system without slavery simply did not exist in those cultures. Wasn't feasible, wasn't possible. But it turns out, when you look closely at the biblical text, that the biblical commands in the Old Testament consistently undermine the power of slave owners in the ancient world, undermine the system of slavery. For example, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was no provision for slaves to be released. But in the Bible, in Leviticus, the Israelites were told to release their slaves after seven years of service. In the ancient Near East, there were no provisions to be given to a slave if they did get liberated. But in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 15, the Israelites were told to give generously to their slaves when they freed them. In the ancient Near East, as well as in Greece and in Rome, slave owners could punish any slave, any time, for any reason, any way they wanted to. But Exodus put restrictions on how a slave could or could not be punished and held the masters accountable. In the ancient world, slaves would be given little time off for holidays. In, for example, Deuteronomy 16 or Deuteronomy 31, slaves in Israel were given uh, comparatively remarkably generous time off, and they were to be given every Sabbath day off, which was unprecedented. In the ancient world, runaway slaves, fugitive slaves, carried a bounty. Nations would make treaties with other nations to ensure that all slaves would get returned. The Code of Hammurabi imposed the death sentence on anybody that helped a runaway slave in the ancient world. By contrast, Deuteronomy 23 said that Israel was to provide sanctuary, a safe place for any runaway slave. This is a radical departure. And then Webb says you have to add to this a remarkable number of what might be called seedbed texts because the seeds are in them that are very contrary to the spirit of the system of slavery. And they carry kind of the seeds of liberation and freedom. For example, only Israel's Bible taught that every single human being, slave or free, is made in the image of God. Carries that kind of worth. Only Israel's Bible taught that every human being was called to exercise dominion, to create value and stewardship of the earth, and that the prophetic requirement for humanity is do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God, and that every human being is the object of God's love, and that every human being is the object of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And then you get to the Apostle Paul who writes to uh, Philemon about the, the release of his slave Onesimus and then writes to the church at Galatia and Paul says, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when people in the ancient world looked at the Bible, they were quite struck by this. Now, when they would see the commands in the Bible from the perspective of the ancient world, they looked very subversive to slavery. They looked very progressive to that world. When we look back 2,000 years later at these passages, they look odd to us. But that's largely because we live in a society where the teachings of the Bible eventually undermined slavery and promoted human equality and eventually led largely through the work and the thought of Christ-following reformers 
to a society, to a social expression that is much more compatible with God's will for human flourishing, where slavery is no longer legally allowed to exist. I'll tell you one other indicator of how anti-slavery the Bible is when it's taken as a whole. In Washington, D.C., some of you may know there's the Museum of the Bible, and it currently has on exhibit something called the Slave Bible. This is produced in the UK, was published in 1808 in order to convert Africans to Christianity and make them good slaves. So they created the Slaves Bible. But the publishers removed those parts of the Bible that might prompt slaves to desire their freedom. So they took out the entire book of Exodus. Anybody know what Exodus is about? It's about captives being liberated from their oppressors. And the publishers thought, oh man, we can't let slaves read that or they'll think that God might do that for them. So we'll take that out of the slave's Bible. They took out the entire book of Revelation because that talks about the ultimate triumph of God's justice for all of humanity at the end. He's going to wipe away every tear. That'd be bad, so they took that out. They took out every mention of liberty or freedom in the Bible. We have been looking at Paul's letter to Corinth. One of his arguments for radical unity was... For we were all baptized in one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, he wrote to the church of Corinth. They took that verse out of the slave Bible too. That'd be a problem. In fact, there are 1,189 chapters in the Protestant Bible. There are only 232 chapters in the slave Bible. To make the Bible safe for slaves, they had to take out about 80% of the chapters. Now, the reality is, our partner, International Justice Mission, talks about this. There are more people, raw numbers, in slavery today than there have ever been, although it's illegal in most places. But there is injustice in many places. And it particularly affects the poor and persons of color. We have a lot of work to do. The Bible, in fact, taken as a whole, uh, can be seen to be and was tremendously subversive of slavery. So that leads to the next question. What does the Bible say about race and racism and racial injustice? Uh, Christian historian Mark Knoll has written a wonderful little book called The Civil War as Theological Crisis. And he writes about how the theological crisis in the Civil War actually involved two issues, not one. One was slavery, but the other was racism. However, very few people, even in those sections of the country that were anti-slavery, very few white people were wrestling with what the Bible said about racism. Now, in the ancient world, uh, people got enslaved generally for a few reasons, often because of debt. Sometimes they got enslaved when their side lost the war and all of their people would become, all their tribe would become slaves. Uh, sometimes slavery was a form of punishment because they didn't have prisons back then. However, in the ancient world, by and large, people were not enslaved because of their race. The kind of slavery that was around in Bible times, in other words, was not race-based slavery. So, for instance, Rome had a lot of slaves. Many of them were from what eventually became Germany or France. A lot of slaves who were whiter than their masters were. So, if people in the white American South had really wanted biblical slavery... That would have meant slavery like the Bible. That would have meant slavery that was not based on race. That would have meant slavery where most of the slaves would turn out to be white people. It turned out that white people really didn't want biblical slavery at all. 
Almost all white Americans, no talks about this, north as well as south, believed in the inferiority of African Americans. Even the vast majority of those white Americans who were against slavery were not in favor of full racial equality and dignity and integration. So the greatest failure of the church in those days was not just its failure to preach against slavery. It was the failure of the church to preach against racism. If the church of Jesus had stood united against the evil of racism, slavery would have collapsed in a day. But the church of Jesus did not do that. And therefore, it took the bloodiest war in U.S. history to stop slavery. And part of the tragic evil consequence was that racism went marching right on. Now, in the ancient world, it was very often thought that certain people are just kind of designed by nature to be slaves. In Greece, the famous philosopher Aristotle, celebrated in lots of other ways, believed that some people are designed to be slaves. And he put it like this, this is Aristotle, that some should rule and others be ruled, in other words, enslaved, is not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rules. Then he extends this to gender. A proper wife should be as obedient as a slave. The female is a female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities, a natural defectiveness. That's Aristotle. We don't know what Mrs. Aristotle thought about that. Probably not a whole lot. This is common thought in the ancient world. Now, the Bible teaches a radically different view of humanity, where everybody shares the image of God, and all people are made to be one through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'll give you just two verses. And this is part of why the Bible as a text was so subversive. Just two verses that show how revolutionary these ideas were in human life both from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, this is the old King James translation. And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. God hath made of one blood all nations of men, all humankind. Now this was actually called in the early 19th century the doctrine of one bloodism, one bloodism. In other words, the idea is God only created one race. And that's the human race. And we all share a common origin. That notion that everybody could be traced back to Adam had profound implications. It would mean that every human being has a common dignity, has a common worth, has a common value. It would mean that racism is not just wrong, it's not just sinful, it is blasphemy. It is to demean the image of God in another human being. And this was so revolutionary that there would be other uh, very odd thoughts sometimes preached by preachers who were pro-slavery. Uh, one whole line of thought came up that became called pre-Adamism. And, and some preachers actually taught in churches the idea that there must have been other kind of quasi-human races that God made before Adam and the inferior races of our day come from some pre-Adam figures in the Bible. It's called pre-Adamism. You've probably heard the story of Noah and the ark. What you may not know is in Genesis chapter 9, there's a passage where Noah pronounces prophetic judgment against his son, Ham. And after over 1,500 years, this began to be taught by certain white preachers inaccurately, incorrectly, falsely. 
as a text that teaches the inferiority of certain races in our day. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. One bloodism changed things a lot. Here's another staggering verse. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And that might not look real stunning at first, so I'll tell you why it is. Uh, Antioch was one of three great cosmopolitan cities in the ancient world. There was Rome, uh, Alexandria, where the famous library was, and then Antioch. Initially, after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus were all Jewish. They were all part of Israel, and they shared this new gospel of Jesus with other Jewish people, with other members of the tribe of Israel. Antioch was the first place where they started telling Gentiles, because Jesus told them, go tell everybody now. And it actually took persecution to get them out there. And then in Antioch, the Gentiles start believing. Book of Acts tells this story. And Jews and Gentiles started loving each other and helping each other and eating together and serving with each other and learning with each other and giving generously to each other and becoming friends with each other. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Do you understand, up until now, basically every religion on earth had been a tribal religion. It was part of a tribe or a state. It's part of what held it all together. Even the, Jew, the, the Jesus movement initially was understood to be kind of a Jewish sect within Israel, which again was primarily an ethnic deal. But now, the Jesus community in Antioch is getting racially diverse. And it's just weird and unprecedented. They didn't know what to call it. In fact, we're told, this is so amazing. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Why do they give us these names and these little phrases? Well, Barnabas was from Cyprus, which was in the Mediterranean. Simeon was from Niger, which was in the sub-Saharan Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which was near the north coast of Africa. Manian was the rich kid who was raised with the son of King Herod in the Middle East. And Saul was from Tarsus in Asia, Asia Minor. In other words, here's the Antioch leadership team, Mediterranean guy, African, African, rich Middle Easterner, and Asia Minor. And we think we invented diversity. What in the world are those guys doing in the same room? Let alone loving and caring for and submitting to and serving one another and, and leading a whole new community. People in Antioch saw this going on and realized this Jesus movement was not just a Jewish sect. This isn't anything anybody had ever seen. They had to come up with a name for these people who would just promiscuously include anybody. And so they called them Christians. Tiny little miniature Christs. After the one who prayed that his father would make his followers all to be one, that the signature of the authenticity of his disciples is they would be one, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are one, that his followers would all be united in love, that would break down all barriers. And now in Antioch it happens. What gave rise, in other words, Christian as a word is only used a couple times in the New Testament. What gave rise to the word Christian is not a community that would exclude people based on their carefully monitored beliefs. It was a community that would include anybody based on their unprecedented love. 
This was the first community in human history where prejudices and stereotyping and racial hostility and in-group privilege were just demolished in the name and power and presence and tidal wave of love of Jesus Christ that came sweeping over. That was Antioch, baby. Those were Christians. So what does that mean for us, for our calling as a church? Well, it means we get to be Christians in the Bay Area, like they got to in Antioch. It means we have an unprecedented opportunity to ask God to help us build a church as diverse as the kingdom of God itself, which would be an inspiration to our sadly divided nation and bring joy to the heart of Jesus. Because things are changing. Uh, according to Business Insider, I just read this, getting ready for this message. Anybody want to guess what the number one condiment in America today is? Salsa. I grew up in a Scandinavian Midwestern town where the number one condiment was butter. Was butter everything. Jesus said, we're to go into all the world. God's brought the world into the Bay Area. Single largest ethnic population in San Francisco is Chinese. Daly City has a larger percentage of Asian population than any U.S. city outside of Hawaii. More than 23% of Bay Area residents are Latino or Hispanic from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Nicaragua, Peru, and more. We have perhaps the largest community of Filipino residents outside the Philippines. We have vibrant African-American communities celebrating this weekend in places like Oakland and, interestingly enough, uh, uh, one called Antioch. Indian population has been exploding. San Jose has the largest Vietnamese population of any city outside of Vietnam. This is where we live. One third of the people who live in the Bay Area were not born in the United States, which means they will be very hungry for community and relationship and meaning and support and someplace that will say, come here, belong here, which means our church gets to be the hands and feet of Jesus in ever-deepening ways. Government agency that does projections along these lines says that this will continue. By the year 2040, the Latino percentage of the population in the Bay Area will be higher than it is right now. The Asian percentage of the population will be higher than it is right now. Government predicts that people who are currently old will get even older. But Jesus' plan for his church is that it get younger and stronger and humbler and more generous and more holy and more loving. And we get to do that. Now, gang, you should know, all of our sites, we're already on our way. Church experts define a mono-ethnic church as one where 80% or more of the people are of the same ethnicity. The vast majority of all Protestant churches fit in that category. We left that category many years ago. Uh, on our staff, our central leadership team is 25% Indian, 50% Asian, and 25% Scandinavian. Maybe a little too much in that last category. <laughs> but we have a long way to go. Next month, I'm going to go one weekend and speak at a multicultural, Jesus-loving church called Bridgeway. And it's leading the way on racial justice. The senior pastor is a friend named David Anderson. We worked at the same church in Chicago. He's African-American. When he moved into a mostly white suburb, he was stopped four times in a single day. And he felt called by God to launch a church that would model breaking racial barriers. And he's calling people to move from racism to gracism. 
He says, gracism is the extension of favor to others based on the grace of God. So I want to be a gracist. I want to repent of wherever that old sin of racism still has a toll hold on me, which sin does in all areas of my life. Wherever I, intentionally or blindly, use power and privilege in a way that excludes rather than includes, in a way that grasps whether than kneels in humility. And I want to call every follower of Jesus at our church to be open to doing the same thing as God convicts. David writes, when we cling to division, we align ourselves with the kingdom of darkness led by Satan, the ultimate divider. That is the way of division. Unity, on the other hand, aligns us with the God of unity and with Christ, the head of the church. What does God think? What does God feel? What does God do at the sight of every human being? Some of you know, uh, Nance and I have our first grandchild, little baby named Chance, seven and a half months old. And, and every day we follow what's going on. He's just fat as a little butterball turkey right now. And when I see him, my heart just melts. Nancy, when I was preaching last night, she was babysitting him. And so right before I came out to preach, she FaceTimed me. Isn't FaceTime a brilliant, brilliant gift from God? And I got to look at that little baby and seven and a half months old, my heart just... And he looked right into the camera and, and said, Grandpa, you're my favorite person in the whole world. <laughs> Just with his eyes, he said it, you know, not. <laughs> what, is, what happens in the heart of God every time he sees a human being? And what's happened over the centuries at the evil and the inhumanity and the tears, every drop of blood? So, gang, can you imagine a Menlo church that is as beautiful and diverse? and mosaic-y and barrier-breaking as the kingdom itself. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Can you see it? Can you imagine year after year after year, we get more people from more cultures, more races, more languages, who reflect more richness of the beauty of the God who created them, who enrich one another with forms of worship and prayer and learning and music and discipleship and family life and history that reflects the beauty of heaven and makes the heart of God sing for joy. Can you imagine Menlo Church as a place where people who do have money, people who do have power, people who might have privilege, instead of living in relentless self-absorption, how can I get more, how can I acquire more, or living in low-level, chronic, fruitless guilt. Instead of that, learn to steward whatever we have and share it and even sacrifice it for the flourishing of those who lack money and lack power and lack privilege and have been shut out and shut down and pushed away for far too long. Can you imagine the God who hath made from one blood people of every nation looking at our church and saying, well done, it's happened again. Antioch has happened again. There are a bunch of Christians here. May it be so. May God make it so. May you be an agent, a power for the force of the unifying, 
barrier-breaking love of God expressed most fully by our Savior Jesus Christ who died on a cross to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Let's pray. God, thank you that we get to live where we live. God, thank you that we get to live when we live. God, thank you that you created human being, every tribe and tongue, color, people, culture, nation. Thank you. Oh, God, forgive us. Forgive every, any one of us, God, who has called to repent for our blindness or our selfishness or our racial attitudes or our behaviors or our exclusiveness or our misuse of privilege or wealth. Oh, God, make us Christians so that the world around us would look at this community, our lives, in our neighborhoods, and, and where we work, and where we go to school, and, and say, we don't know what to call these people. May it be so, God, we pray in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus. Amen.